You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of God, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the drive time show, I should say, at Voice of Islam radio station. You're joined by myself, Raheel Ahmed, and brother Fahim Nasir. We'll be with you from four o'clock, which now is four past four, yeah. to, until six o'clock, inshallah. So, what are the two topics that we're discussing today, Fahim? So, we're first starting off with uh, art, mm-hmm. a means of adoration or association. We're trying to mm-hmm. figure that out, um, mm-hmm. and we're going to hopefully get some really awesome guests as well mm-hmm. and then the second hour we're going to be speaking about faith revival the universal search for a reformer how everyone is looking for a reformer mm-hmm. um, and we're going to kind of interesting condense that together interesting so um you know speaking about uh you know art have you ever wondered you know through the rooms of a museum you know seeing cabinets upon cabinets of pots and you know uh, you know vases from 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 across the globe representing you know different cultures through time and space uh, and did you ever consider why all these objects are so beautifully de- decorated uh, surely you know there was no practical need was there uh, you know a jug will pour just as well regardless of it if you know a flower is engraved into its side a vase you know will be just as useful regardless of it you know regardless of if episodes of uh, you know uh, the Odyssey, the Odyssey, of, you know, were painted, uh, you know, around it. So why do we, as the, you know, the main question is, why as, uh, do we as human beings insist on making everything beautiful? You know, uh, why are we not content with an object serving solely its practical purpose? Yeah, well, that's the intersection of art and religion, right? It's mm-hmm. it's been a dynamic and intriguing aspect of human culture throughout history. Okay, so. It's art is often served as a powerful medium for expressing and exploring religious beliefs and values and narratives. So, among the various <coughs> religious traditions, um, Islam, with its rich history and diverse cultural influences, has fostered a unique and multifaceted relationship with art. So, but going back to your previous question and trying to ponder over that, yeah, I, I've often uh, like. When I think about it, like what, like why do we design certain things the way they are, right? Like because there's the practical element, but the beautification of it. Like mm. so, when it comes to if I put my marketing hat on, uh, mm-hmm. for me the reason why we don't just have because look, if we had the same product over and over again that did the same thing with no difference in the way it looked, mm-hmm. then you know you'd ultimately have the same thing but the, it provides that ability to express creativity and to you know showcase diversity um and you know i th- i think that it's it's a it'd be a bit boring without art wouldn't it absolutely and i think it reminds me of 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 you know the hadith of the prophet uh um is mentioned in various hadith but it in 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 Mojimul also there says in allah jamilun yuhibbul jamal Right, he says that Allah, verily, Allah is beautiful and He loves beauty, right? Mm. And this is um, something that's that's you know something very beautiful. And 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 in Sahih Muslim, the same hadith is mentioned, and the Prophet peace be upon him is speaking about uh, you know boasting and how that is uh, not allowed in Islam, right? Mm. Um, so you know a person, uh, you know a person, you know asked the Prophet that you know of course someone wants to wear 
good clothes and yeah. you know he, he, he wants to be dressed nicely he wants to be beautiful yeah. so the prophet peace be upon him says of course that's not what i mean you know they're two separate things and he differentiated he says verily allah loves you know the, uh, he is beautiful himself and he loves beauty but he says um he says takabbur uh, or you know being boastful or arrogance is is such yeah. that you think low of others yeah and this is a differentiation that that he did so i think in, intention being you know a, you know a huge part of it yeah uh, I, th- you know. I think that's really key because it's yeah. like it's saying you know beautify yourself or your surroundings as much as you want yeah. but don't look at other people's expressions or creativity or the way they dress themselves <coughs> or hold themselves yeah. and look down upon that because of what you've done exactly. that's that's and, where that and, fine and line also is also islamic art you know is is it is deeper than that you know it has a deep uh, you know it has a manifestation of the deep spiritual and aesthetic sensibilities which which, which are embedded within uh, the the islamic faith um, rooted in the teachings of the quran and the hadith you know uh, sayings of the prophet islamic art reflects a balance between the human urge for creative expression and the reverence for the divine right mm-hmm. uh, and this artistic tradition sort of encompasses a wide range of forms from intricate you know calligraphy and geometric patterns to breathtaking architecture and exquisite textiles yeah. so all of these things that we see behind it the intention of these people were they were sort of you know manifesting the deep spiritual and 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 you know uh, you know religious you know feelings and you know their ex- their expressions also definitely i want to circle back to what you said about um god uh, appreciating <coughs> beauty right um for me like that automatically made me think that look god gave us the ability to one see beauty mm-hmm. and to the world that he created around us how many beautiful things there are mm-hmm. so obviously there would not be any sort of like God wouldn't be unhappy with us expressing beauty or creativity or showcasing something like art um and expressing ourselves that way because you know ultimately we have we are surrounded by beauty like look at the the way nature is like how like majestically it just works all in tandem and the the ability for us to see it it could have been that we all see it but we see no beauty we just yeah. see like every table looks the same to us or every like we've been given that i mm. that ability so yeah. there is need for art within the world absolutely no 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 doubt i mean delving deeper um you know in, in, into into islamic art the significance of islamic art goes beyond you know mere ornamentation it holds as as i was mentioning before a sacred purpose for connecting believers with the divine yeah. um because if you think about it um uh you know associating associating partners with god and 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 sort of uh, drawing god all of that is prohibited in islam yeah. so so you see there there is this fine balance that 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 one needs to uh, you know uh, take into account so the prohibition of figurative representation you know in religious context led to to the development of intricate geometric patterns and elaborate calligraphy often seen you know adorning mosques mosques uh, manuscripts and other islamic artifacts um, these designs not only de- demonstrate artistic prowess but also embody deeper meanings in often you know evoking spiritual contemplation and unity with the divine order and islamic art is intimately intertwined uh, with the broader cultural you know diversity of regions where islam has actually flourished uh, from ornate tower work of the <coughs> alhambra in spain i've actually been there it's, it's magnificent uh, you know to the majestic domes and minarets of hagia sophia uh, in, in in turkey of course Islamic art bears the imprints of various historical uh you know dynasties and 
geographical influences. And, and, and this diversity sort of reflects the capacity of Islam to adapt and evolve while you know, preserving its core uh, prin- principles. Yeah. And, you know, there's an exploration between of, of art and religion, and particularly within the context of Islam, we delve into the intric- intricate tapestry that connects the sacred and the creative. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to try and do today in this hour with our guests is examine how Islamic art serves as a conduit for spiritual devotion. It's actually an, a vessel for cultural identity and a testament to the enduring interplay between faith and human expression. So through the, lo- the lens of Islamic art, we embark on a journey that not only <coughs> celebrates the aesthetic marvels, but also uncovers the profound spiritual dimensions mm-hmm. that have shaped and continue to shape the world of art and religion. Of course, and there are many psychological benefits of art. And, and I've recently come to know, let's say stress relief. Um, everybody's stressed, isn't yeah. it? So stress is proven to be detrimental for our f- you know, physical and mental health. And one of, the mo- one of the best ways to combat stress is to make art, yeah. right? And s- there's studies after studies ha- th- and, uh, that have shown that drawing, doodling, coloring, and simply creating something for 20 plus minutes reduces cortisol, the stress hormone, of course. And the best part is that previous art experience is not required to reap these benefits. Are you a doodler? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> How do you, do you just sit there and doodle when you're like, I find that whenever I'm on the phone or you if do I'm, that? Yeah, yeah, I sit there and I'm just like Interesting. I'd, I'd draw, uh, drawing. Mm-hmm. I usually my name is really mm, weird. Yeah, I'd, <laughs> no, I, I usually do six, six, six Signature. signatures. Yeah, yeah. 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 You just keep signing, yeah, signing, yeah. signing, practicing. Yeah, I should have, I should have taken you know, this, this one. The what? Do the signature? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Si- the signature. Yeah. So, you know, the current signature is not as nice as it. Oh, okay. But yeah, since yeah. It's, it's you're evolving it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's good. But uh, do you do any other sort of creative stuff? I'm not. I'm not good at drawing, to be honest. No. Coloring is I do with my daughter and yeah. my son. That's something. Are you able to stay within the lines? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly, yeah. Yeah. So are you f- are you finding that that's a stress relief then? Yes, it is because I think uh, it, it is to be honest, and, and I've I haven't really thought about it. Yeah. It's not being it like a conscious thought like oh, yeah, I'm going exactly. to de-stress by yeah. by coloring, but you've probably thought back. That's to the it thing just because now. if it's a conscious, th- it, it, it won't be a conscious thing. Exactly. If it's a conscious thing, then you'll be conscious of what you're leaving behind. Yeah. And then you can't leave that behind. Yeah. Don't think of the elephant, as they say, right? <laughs> yeah. So Don't think about the elephant. Yeah. So but you. So exactly. For the next so minute, when you're, you're doing it, you're not. You know, you're not. You're, you're consciously just there with your, you know, with a child, and you're, you're, you know, yeah. you're inter- interacting. Um, and I think that that's that's the main thing. But yeah, it's, there's there's also another element of boosting self-esteem and 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 the consistent practice of art. Can build a sense of a you know accomplishment for all ages in just just forty five minutes, and it said that creativity makes us feel good about ourselves, and it, it sort of validates our unique ideas and our ability to turn ideas into something physical. Um, taking time from your hobbies and crafts often provides a sense of self worth, uh, confidence in our abilities. Uh, so knit the sweater uh, and play that piano, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I I think it's really interesting, and you know, if there's anyone listening today that has used um, art or like creativity as a stress relief or to boost self esteem or uh, a few others that we're going to discuss, don't forget to give us a call on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can DM us uh, on any social media platform. Um, with the handle at Voice of Islam UK, um, yeah, send us a message. Show us your art. 
tag us in it <laughs> let us know but yeah as we were discussing we were discussing the psychological benefits of art and it doesn't just stop at stress relief or boosting your self esteem um it actually uh, can be very healing mm-hmm. and um by healing i mean actually healing from trauma um which which is a complicated process and you know there are different and many practices that can help facilitate this process um but what what they found is that research has proved that art can help process pain and provide a direct connection between the mind and body to help with this healing process so mm-hmm. you know it's one to explore and finally uh, another psychological benefit of art is uh, expressive therapy uh, where expressive arts foster deep personal growth and community development expressive art therapy allows users to laugh let go and relax which helps decrease depression anxiety and stress <coughs> so yeah it's 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 an interesting one uh, i I, f- i find that um mm. when i automatically when i first think of art or yeah. when i was thinking about the subject i was like you know you think museums right you think these big paint paintings you think mona yeah. lisa you think all of these things and or they, then you think of the places you visited like you you've been to spain and seen seen yeah. the architecture there i've been to turkey to see see the architecture there and um that that first initial thought that oh, okay art is this and but did you ever think and i haven't and this is a learning for me is that there was a creative process that went into this and that actually it may have either healed someone it may have you know caused them to actually feel better about themselves improve their self esteem or maybe just people express themselves through through art and and get that stress so maybe if anybody's sitting there and they're having a long day maybe try what Rahil does and and sit down uh, and and color within the lines and don't stress too much about whether you stay in it but yeah, yeah express yourself in a creative way it definitely has psychological benefits um yeah that's something i've learned today of course So let's let's move on to art religion and politics right mm-hmm. because before we delve into it too much let's let's think about those different purposes of art is it simply to look beautiful or is there something deeper and at times even more sinister yeah the medici family rulers of florence during the european renaissance period left their mark in every cobblestone of the city and in the very spirit of art across Europe for the next 5 centuries. Mm-hmm. Their influence cannot go unnoticed and whether we like it or not, their role in patronizing and commissioning art was a revolutionary turn in the art world and set a precedent that has still not wholly disappeared. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this family and their role in the production of art was how and why the Catholic Church the Catholic Church was central to it. given their background as being bankers they built their fortune through usury a grievous sin according to the new testament mm-hmm. it is uh, said that cosimo de medici um de medici uh, had anxieties about being locked out of the gates of heaven for this very reason and as such commissioned not only the building of churches but also religious art as a way to ha- perhaps compensate for his immoral breadwinning means <laughs> so you can see that um mm-hmm. the, the the art religion and politics can sometimes like intertwine and yeah, and yeah. um you know we're seeing it here with the medici family who because they were feeling so 
guilty for for uh, going against the the teachings of their religion they felt that they wanted to compensate for that through their mm-hmm. um through building of churches uh, and commissioning religious art yeah and there are theories that you know mimetic art which is which is um that is an art which seeks to sort of I- Im- imitate life as closely as possible is 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 frowned upon if not prohibited in Islam his holiness mr tahir ahmed may Allah be pleased with him clarified this uh, in a friday sermon in tw- 2003 and and explained that when the holy prophet peace be upon him cursed those who depict images <coughs> he clearly meant those specific images that stimulate mushrik mushrikana beliefs right which is or mushrikana thoughts which are association of partners with allah right yeah. um however other others argue that art is a means to worship the creator it is a way to recognize and study the beauty of this world and and perhaps continue to adorn the world with further beauties as we progress and invent as society um, do, but islam think, yeah yeah go on i was going to say do you think that's really important because they often people say that um you know to love if you love the art you have to love the creator but it also works the other way right like mm. you can only uh, you can appreciate the creator through the art as well mm-hmm. so i thought that that's quite a really clear point there mm-hmm. but the point is that that from from the islam oh yeah we're going i think it's better better to go to our first guest now before discussing this uh that we'll be speaking to our first guest on the line we have Amy Butt she's a primary school teacher history lead and is a, is passionate about teaching emotional intelligence within an outside classroom she has written and uh, on the subject extensively she's also a poet calligraphic artist working with the arabic verses of the quran with this short introduction assalamu alaikum and welcome to the drive time show assalamu alaikum thank you so much for joining us uh for our program So we're discussing art um and the questions that we have for you is the studies show that ser- creating art can be a very uh, you know peaceful process um can you describe how it can be a space for reflection for you know specifically for you Um I think specifically for me and I, and, and I'm and I'm quite sure that there there will be more people who could relate to this I found that art really provides that space of reflection not just a physical space where you actually sit down and um finally let go of your normal hectic space of life we're going to work coming mm-hmm. home sorting the house out um for me it it actually gives me the physical time and space yeah. to uh focus my mind on something else but also the mental space because i feel like um when i'm producing a particular piece of art it really allows me to reflect upon um whatever i've been thinking throughout the day and where i ha- whenever i haven't done that and i've tried to kind of process things or just push it out of the way eventually those thoughts um kind of creep up on us so allowing that um that time for reflection on the day or the couple of days that you've been through and really just um pausing yourself and really allowing yourself that time to recognize that you are a work in progress that continuously need that attention and focus for yourself as well so i truly find that art is is a way of actually recognizing that you know i'm i'm not the finished product i need to work on my thoughts i need to work on processing it and it really allows that that mirror that you need um 
where when we're outside, we have all these filters on uh, to make sure that we kind of live up to societal expectations. And when I sit down and I allow myself to have that space for really that critical self-reflection, um, sometimes it's hard because you allow all those filters to fall away. And, you know, you can you have to face up to whatever you see in the mirror, whether that's your ego, the generational traumas that you've gone through, anything really that can blind us to seeing our natural state in the moment. So I think for me, art really provides that moment where I cut everything off and I really try to be very honest with myself where I stand and what I need to improve on. This is why whenever I share my pieces of art while they're work in progress, I always say that my art is a work in progress, but so am I. Right, and so I'm curious, uh, what drew you to the art of Arabic calligraphy in particular? Um, I think my very first um, calligraphy piece was actually just a gift that I made for my uh, for my parents when they returned from Hajj, and um, and then I never went back to it until um, COVID hit actually. And as most people, I think, um, we were really forced to, you know, stop and think about what we were actually doing with our daily life. And to some extent, I I was also forced to have that pause my, you know, priorities and kind of sh- really reflect on what is important in my life. And to some extent, I think I ended up feeling a bit lost. Mm. And... Um, as, as we're often told that, you know, the best guidance is found in the Holy Quran. And I started looking for um, for particular verses for guidance. Um, and I remember I was on a hike once and, I, and, and, and after that I was really thinking and I opened the Quran and one of the verses that came to me was, we found you lost and we guided you. Mm. Um, wow. and, and it really allowed me to realize that just like I'm sometimes lost on the hike and eventually I find my way, if I find the right guide, and the guide for me is the Holy Quran, um, I will eventually be guided back and because Allah is always there and this is just a journey that I'm on. So calligraphy was for me really a, a guiding tool. So depending on whatever feeling I'm reflecting on, and w- although it started as a tool that I used when I was feeling lost or, uh, you know, full of despair. It's now also become a tool when I feel blessed or when I feel this overwhelming sense of gratitude. Um, so you can really see through the art pieces that I've produced what my emotional journey has been because you, you can see how in the beginning it's really talking about feeling lost, wanting to hear, um, you know, Allah's whispers of I am near. And and now when I look back on it, it really allows me to see my own emotional journey, my own spiritual journey, actually. So, yeah, so calligraphy was something that I was drawn to because it allowed me the, the spiritual guidance, but at the same time, also the physical and mental space and time that I <coughs> needed to cut everything else out. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and you see, when it comes to art uh, there are many things to consider such as you know color and composition mm-hmm. uh, how can these different elements be symbolic you know if an artist uh, th- uh, you know thoughts um, you know and you do, do you often find your state of mind impacts your artistic choices 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think um, when I was growing up, and I actually did GCSE art as well, I always struggled to mm-hmm. kind of find that symbolism. And the more I want my art to express my personal um, state of mind, I feel that the more I feel connected to those symbols. And although it can be a general symbolism, I feel like I always end up looking at what am I feeling and how do I need to express that. So sometimes it's not even about are people going to understand what I'm trying to say. So for example, one of my pieces of art was um, where the font had been uh, painted into gradient sunrise colors. For me, that depicted that when you hear um, those whispers of Allah being near, it's almost like a sunset, like a new beginning, a new day. And and I didn't feel the need to actually, you know, clarify that when I shared my art. So I think some things we share um, unknowingly because the symbolism is such a generally accepted one. And sometimes it's just about whatever I'm going through and what I need to express. So I kind of like the fact that I can I can still have some personal sentiment hind- hidden in the, you know, the way I express it while others will be easily interpreted by people who look at it. So that's the first thing. It's about, you know, the different colors that I use um, and how are those colors going to uh, convey the, the thought or the feeling or the sentiment of the actual piece. Um, but it always obviously starts with the actual Quranic verse um, because that for me is, is the first pointer towards whatever I'm going to express. And then it then we talk about the actual choices in terms of how big am I going to make it, what color am I going to use, am I going to put the font in the middle, is it going to be covering the whole paper. Um, and in, in terms of the art medium, the one thing that I've been using a lot lately is alcohol inks. Um, because when I started using it, I realized how frustrated I was that I couldn't control the flow of the ink. And now I feel that when I, when I feel like I can't control things around me, mm-hmm. alcohol ink has become my uh, first choice of medium because it allows me to realize that when you let go, how beautiful things sometimes can turn out. So sometimes, as you know, as cliche as, as it sounds, mm-hmm. it really is about going the flow and allowing to see how eventually things will turn out if you if you just trust the process. Well, speaking of processes, could you describe your uh, creative process for us when, you know, starting a new piece of calligraphy and, you know, talk us through that and walk us through it? Yes, of course. So uh, the first thing is me trying to reflect what it is that I'm struggling with or what is my um, overwhelming sentiment, like my feeling, my emotion. And and when I find a... um, a particular verse that really allows me to reflect on it properly um, I then think about is this um, a particular verse that will need a calming color or would it need so for example when I I've just finished a piece bless Allah so it's Allah not sufficient for its servant and when I was drawing that I was actually not in a very good place so I decided that the background was going to be fully black. It's almost like the darkest night that you're going through. And and then the actual font, I chose um, white and gold because they both represent, for me, white. Uh, I, I did it silver. It represents 
um, the the light that comes through um, when a life there for you mm-hmm. and when you actually open yourself up for it and also how precious those moments can be when you actually realize that hence the goal so it's about me expressing and trying to realize what I want to convey and what is the best medium what is the best color for it and when I shared this pieces of art I actually didn't share that at all mm-hmm. this was just something that I needed to do in those particular colors and sometimes people do relate to it um, and when I actually shared that piece of art a lot of people did say that they liked the simplicity of it um, and and maybe that's it you know sometimes it really is as simple as you realizing yeah. that Allah is sufficient for you mm. um, and and maybe you know subconsciously that's why I picked black as well so sometimes there are lots of subconscious choices that I make as an artist and sometimes they're very conscious choices that I even have to research, uh, you know, in terms of symbolism. Very interesting, and and it was a pleasure speaking to you. So thank you so much so for much having me. There. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call if you want to discuss art and how it inspires you. How you know how it may be a you know peaceful process for you. How it helps you. You know with with, with your state of mind. How it impacts. You know your artistic choices your creative processes so all of this we're discussing here you're more than welcome to call us here and speak to us about it right so though islam is of course very clear we were speaking about it before um yeah the guest came um was very clear on the grievous sin of associating partners with god mm-hmm. the very kalma the testimony one bears as he enters the fold of islam there is none worthy of worship except allah and muhammad peace and blessing of allah be upon him is his servant and his messenger yes declares we must renounce all partnership with god it is here where at a first glance we may not think much of art but as it turns out art has always trodden a very thin line between adoration and association yeah um by taking the liberties to recreate the holy personage of Jesus on on whom be peace or Moses on whom be peace or Noah on whom be peace or Krishna on whom be peace uh, we have highly politicized religion and used it as a defense of some of humanity's most heinous crimes we have given such holy personages features that we find desirable and made them aesthetically pleasing according to societal standards rather than appreciating the teachings of such figures it is when we begin to take their physical appearances into our own hands we inevitably take it a, f- a step further and ascribe other attributes and flaws to such figures mm-hmm. man takes it upon himself to become his own god and corrupt the pure teachings of religion with far reaching consequences let's take let's take an example here um this the reproductions of jesus on on, on whom be peace popularized as an aryan man his holy image has been warped to justify white supremacy despite it being very clearly written in the bible that jesus on whom be peace was a mis- middle eastern man mm. the reproduction of religious figures and events with the evil intention of furthering inequality and injustice is a grave attack on the purity of both religion and art itself yeah it's simply a lie yeah it's nothing else it's a lie you know so um 
Well, it's just like if I'm conjuring something from my mind and just saying that okay, this is how it should be. Like that's, mm-hmm. it's obviously going to distort pictures. Uh, it's it's going to distort people's beliefs, right? It's that's exactly the point with God as well, because Allah says, "Laisa kamithlihi shay." There's nothing like unto Him. Yeah. Nothing like unto Him. That's why drawing God and you know these sort of elements. It's um, he says to f- if you want to find me, find me through my attributes. Yeah. You know, Rahman, Rahim, being merciful, being kind, compassionate, forgiving. All of these these things are there. Yeah. So so, but yeah, moving forward, I think uh, it is it is therefore not with without reason that Muslims have the right to not only be offended by but also warn against cartoon competitions such as the ones certain politi- politicians encouraged a few years back uh, to. Where they character yeah, characterize the, the, you know, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It is not just to, to actually protect the honor of the Holy Prophet because that is already protected. I mean, yeah. nothing can, we can, noth- we can well, add we nothing from it or take nothing yeah. from it. Um, but it is also because Islam recognizes the dangers of, of taking the physicality of such, ho- you know, or such holiness into our own hand. Yeah. Right? But that's the thing. Um, Beauty, although we have the ability to look at beauty, it's um, it's subjective, right? Yes. Something you you may find beautiful, I may not, right? Um, you I might see a scenery that you think isn't as yeah wow as as I think it is, or yeah. you know, architecture might not be my cup of tea. So yeah. I think that because of that subjectivity yeah. of it, I think it's wrong to try to. Um, Try to have your own subjective opinion on these religious figures or on God, which will then, you know, could potentially impact the way other people see it. Mm, absolutely. And to turn from, you know, visual art for a moment to poetry, let's say, I would like to quote a beautiful couplet from Molana Rumi. Rumi is very famous, as we know. He says, In your light, I learn how to love, in your beauty, how to make poems. You dance inside my chest where no one sees you. Sometimes I do, and that sight becomes this art. These are beautiful words of perhaps one of the most widely read poets. Rumi, yet he is perhaps also one of the most misunderstood and mis- or misinterpreted poets to have ever walked the earth. Whilst many may consider his poetry at a first glance to be that to a you know sort of romantic interest, the reality is that the inspiration of his poetry is Allah the Almighty, is the love for God Almighty. Yeah. Bearing this in mind, let's think of the of, of, of the couplet again. It says, In your light in your light I learn how to love. In your beauty how to make poems. You dance in my chest where no one sees you. Or sometimes I do, and that sight becomes this art. So that sight becomes art, indeed being able to appreciate God's manifestations in this world through his creation causes us to create art ourselves not god forbid in any way as to replicate god's god's magnificence but rather to appreciate the beautiful design of the universe now to further explain the link between god's crea- creation and us in our desire to create art we can turn to the great thinker and muslim ibn arabi a muslim saint ibn arabi who to whom the prophet Messiah, peace upon him the founder of the muslim community has spoken very highly of he 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 highlights Tawheed, this is that the oneness of God as his guiding principle. And for Ibn Arabi, this was a perfect source of understanding the human condition and its relation to the Creator. For him it was obvious to uh, for him it was obvious 
that there is no real being but God. That is, the existence of God is the only thing that is in and of itself complete, uncaused, unimplicated, and that everything other than God is unreal being. By this he means that every other thing depends on the existence of God. That's very deep, isn't it? Now, this metaphor, um, you know, Ib, in this metaphor, Ibn Arabi compares an object being reflected in countless mirrors to the relationship between God and his creatures. God's essence is seen in the existent human being as God is the object and human beings the mirrors. Inside our souls, God's attributes are inscribed, meaning two things, that since humans are mere reflections of God's God, there can be no distinction or separation between the two. And without God, the creatures would be non-existence. This is why God is real and everything, el everything else is unreal. When an individual understands that there is no separation between human and God, they begin on the path of ultimate oneness. Now this, you've got to understand, it's a metaphor. Hmm. It, this is not a concept that in reality, you know, man and God are one. Because as I said before, Laysa Kamithlihi, Laysa Kamithlihi Shay, right? Yeah. There's nothing like unto him, God says. So you've got to understand both contexts, you know, in uh, simultaneously. The one who decides to walk in this oneness, i.e. one who obeys God, mm. right? Pursues a true reality and responds to God's longing to be known. The search within for, for this reality of oneness causes one to be reunited with God as well as improve self-consciousness. It is through this that we humans become real or, or actually complete. Yeah. So through this, you know, through trying to behave in a way which, <coughs> sorry, honors the divine attributes of God in our souls, which makes, which actually, you know, in fact, makes us closer to God. Now, indeed, one of the attributes of God, I think we, we, you, you can speak about this yeah. in a bit more, is al-musawwir, like that is the fashioner. And it goes back to the idea where some believe that painting or other visual art is forbidden in Islam. So yeah, there's an explanation, isn't there, um, okay. from His Holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmed. Yeah. Uh, may Allah have mercy on his soul. Um, where he explained, um, some people could say that the painting is totally forbidden because our master, Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, did not permit pictures, according to them, either to be kept in the house or to be drawn. But they don't understand the fact that those pictures which the Holy Prophet forbade were in invariably the pictures of idols. That was a time when picture taking by camera was out of the question because they were not invented. Mm -hmm. Drawing pictures or painting was entirely devoted to religious purposes for drawing pictures of imaginary gods. Mm -hmm. In the days of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of God be upon him, we don't find any art in Arabia, not even remotely in which people were being drawn or realities were being drawn. You will not find um, dimensions of any scenery being drawn by any artist of that time. You will not find the portrait being drawn by somebody, nor any particular situation of reality being drawn. All that was being drawn was not only fiction, but fiction which was against the fundamental principles laid down by Islam. There were pictures of imaginary idols, partners of Allah. Yeah. They were either drawn or chiseled out of, in the form of statues. Of course. I think that differentiation has to be made. Um, and, and with that, I think we're going to our next guest on the line. We have Labid uh, Mirza. Labid Mirza is a trainee imam and has worked in graphic design, combining Islamic elements with graphic design principles. With this show introduction, Assalamu Alaikum. I know Labid very well. <laughs> <laughs> Assalamu Alaikum, Labid. How are you? 
ഇസ്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാമിക്ലാ
and how you can get a message across. Yeah. So yeah, so like I said, that that's uh, remember with working on that website, it was all about that. How do we get to the audience? Mm. Yeah, we need to work on it. Uh, going forward as well, yeah. Well, what's the website <laughs> for a, any listeners? Yeah, yeah, history. uk. <laughs> so it covers the um, the history of the community within within the UK and the efforts of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in 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 trying to uh, you know preach the message of Islam to the Western public. Right. So, um, what role does uh, cultural authenticity play in your work, and like how are you ensuring your designs respectively uh, respectfully um, represent Islamic art I think you know what you guys are talking about earlier in terms of the fact that so so um, religious art in general it, it's quite tricky in the sense that we, we do have our balance right mm. obviously we can't depict other people we can't depict the prophet we can't depict God and so on and so forth the interesting thing is that this was never a, um, a, though I'll be maybe an obstacle but it never halted the work of the artist, especially in Islamic history, they always found something that they could do um, to to you know make their art, and that's what I um, sort of always admire. Uh, what you were saying earlier in terms of Ibn Arabi and his sort of ideas in terms of you know you can see God in everything. Um, that that that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, with your question in terms of how do I ensure that my designs are respectful representing Islamic art? I mean, mm-hmm. I I sort of do this. I think most of this all comes from that research that you go through that seeing what makes sense and what doesn't at a particular point. Um, mm. So investing that time in research is definitely a big thing. But then obviously the the the, the great thing is, especially now in the world that we live in, is that, so, so for example, I'm not a calligrapher, but I've got friends and, 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 you know, like people with me around me that are really good in calligraphy. So, you know, I can always go to them for some help and things like that. And so in that sense, the vision might be, you know, uh, starting for me but the design the process has so many people that are working on it all at the same time right and um, the question of Islam in art can be <coughs> quite a sensitive one as as we've discussed um, as a graphic designer how do you think other designers and artists should approach Islam if they are working on similar uh, or with similar themes So here's the thing, Ray, with, with anything um, when it comes to um, respect and especially within any kind of society, it's all about learning about the other, learning about their backgrounds, learning about what is a story behind the art that they're seeing today. Um, everything has a story behind it. And um, in that sense, uh, I, I think this is one reason why I, you know, and I think everyone would agree with me that the new battle for two most complex you could look at it for hours and hours because it's just so beautiful mm. and you can understand that the designer had a real understanding of uh, both how uh, Islamic art works in in the modern landscape mm-hmm. um, when I, so that's why I say when it comes to um, kind of other designers and how they should approach it um, it's, it's sometimes ripping past those stereotypes and going into deeper meaning you know why why is um, why do we sh- show so much nature in our in our designs? You often see like floral patterns and stuff like that often in our designs. Why do we do that? Um, why is calligraphy so um, important in our design? It's, it's just more about understanding each other, kind of talking to each other. So I'd say definitely through designers, especially if they're not from um, an Islamic background themselves, 
to just have that kind of conversation, then it, it really does make the difference. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, I think that's it. That's all we have for you. Jazakallah for joining us. And uh, let's update the website. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much. Jazakallah. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you so much. Assalamualaikum. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. We are coming to the end of the program, um, and uh, something uh, you know we need to uh, you know clarify with regards to because uh, the idea is known in Islam or you know mentioned by um, the, you know the idea that we're discussing before with regards to Ibn Arabi. It's it's known as Wahdatul uh, Wujud, right? Um, and uh, and sort of in the Islamic philosophy, Sufi me- metaphysics, you know, is centered on the concept of wahda, meaning tawhid of Allah, like un- unity. Mm. Um, and so that that you know, wahdul wujud literally means the unity of existence or, or or unity of being, right? And wujud meaning existence or uh, presence. Um, and then you know you have this you know deep discussion with regards to this philosophy. So that's why I was, I was differentiating between, you know, that the idea that us, us and God are one, right? Well, then the question would be then, where Allah says, "Laisa kamithlihi shay," right? There's no, no, nothing like unto Him. Hmm. So we have to understand this from the perspective that when we, when we say, when we say that the purpose, what, what, what we're speaking about is the purpose and what God demands of us, right? Yeah. Whereas there's nothing like unto God, no, nothing, nothing physical us as human beings. We've been created to obey His commands. We can, uh, you know, we can. Um, his certain attributes, we can, uh, you know, um, copy them or, you know, show them to the people, exemplify them, right, in a manner. Let's say he's compassionate and, and, and in our human form, whatever way we can be compassionate, right, we'll be mirroring the attribute of Allah the Almighty. Mm. That, that, that doesn't make us same as Allah. Yeah. Are, you, are you getting the point? Yeah. So this, this, these are, this is a slight, uh, you know, uh, I think clarification I think we have to give for the benefit of our listeners. But moving forward with the with the quotation I think you're mentioning with regards yeah. to, to Al Musavir, yeah. which is another one of the attributes of God, that is that is that he's he's a fashioner. So please continue with that. Yeah, just uh, to continue on this is uh, his holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmed uh, who's the fourth uh, caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community. So, uh, as he was explaining, uh, what our holy prophet peace and blessings of God be upon him forbade were these things, uh, because we have no evidence, um, we have no evidence that a real situation in life was ever being drawn in his presence, which he forbade. My inference is that he, what he forbade was the that purpose, which you understand, to extend it further into a field which was never in his mind in is incorrect nor could he have spoken against that because that artistic realism did not interfere with any religious purpose here we can understand the purpose easily idol making stands in hostility to the islamic concept of oneness of allah so whatever promotes idol idolatry um, should be forbidden that's quite understandable but where nature as such and realities are being produced somewhere Mm -hmm. how could they be forbidden neither is it forbidden nor could it be forbidden to my mind so i don't think this should be declared haram or forbidden either but if it is if it becomes an obsession with your girls or boys and begins to interfere with serious pursuits in life um 
and so with that i think that it's it's clearly explaining that the um, the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him didn't uh, it, there was clearly um a correlation between um art not art um drawing and um uh, like depictions of 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 this with uh idols and because that's in complete conflict with the islamic principles that's why at that time the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him mentioned it absolutely and i think we are coming to the end of the program i've only about three minutes to go i think there's still so much to learn and i think especially with the first uh you know both callers both both of our guests you know um speak you know very deeply about this topic and yeah. how art relates to you know the imagination and specifically libid libid you know he 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 sort of emphasized and, and me being very close and seeing his work yeah. you know you see that because islamic concepts right um the message with that we're trying to get across or even the logo that we designed for our for our, for our department right it's it signified something I'm right? you look at it now. right yeah so um but but he he comes up with this you know unique ideas and and you know sort of captures that in in a, in a very minimalistic uh so if you see the yeah. logo yeah so tell so me about says, this yeah. so, so logo you see like a sun on the left right right yeah it's almost as uh, the hadith yeah. of the prophet says sun will rise from the west okay, okay? yeah which means that the, the the teachings of islam will spread in the west okay nice right so yeah. just in that logo you would see that there's a, there's this fuzzle mosque yeah. there's a first mosque in london yeah. and then there's the sun rising from 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 the west west right. side of it yeah Can okay. you see it? Yeah. So this is what these are the things that he you know tries to capture yeah. and uh, these intricate details. Yeah. That, um, exactly. No, that's really nice. And just a reminder, it's history. Um, and yeah, I think that you can learn a lot from this uh, website. Yeah. Uh, I know Rahil spent a lot of time um, mm-hmm. working on this website as well, uh, and I'm pretty sure that you will learn a lot from it. Absolutely. Uh, it's got some great history. Yeah. So before we go on to the break, we are discussing another very pertinent topic in the next hour where we're going to be talking about the es- eschatology, uh, eschatological aspects uh, you know, of of nearly all religions where they contain prophecies concerning the advent of a savior or a messiah or a reformer. Mm. What do they mean? And we'll be speaking to two important uh, guests, one will be coming into the studio and another will be speaking on the phone so if you're interested in this t- topic uh whether you're interested in cr- uh, christian eschatology buddhist eschatology you know eschatology refers to the end of times and and you know prophecies and um all of these teachings so stay with us we'll be back with the, uh as you know speaking about this important topic any final com- comments from you well I, i just love people to give us a call and talk to us about this because um, you know is there is do you follow a religion or do you follow a thought process that is expecting a reformer mm-hmm. would love to talk to you about it we're, you know we're going to explain how different religions are looking and waiting for a reformer and the ex, uh, the examples and and the explanations that we have for that so we would love to hear from you um you know straight after this absolutely So this brings us to the end of our program and uh, shortly we'll be going to the news uh, join us back straight after the news assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh you're listening to the voice of islam radio broadcasting on DAB 
and via the internet 24 hours a day. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Welcome back to the second hour of Draft Time Show. You're joined by myself, uh, Rahil Ahmed, and Fahim Nasir. So, in the second hour, uh, we're talking about eschatology. Eschatology refers to you know the part of theology concerned uh, with with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the human uh, of the soul and humankind. And more particularly, uh, the aspect of theology that we want to discuss today is about revival of faith and a universal search for a reformer. Now, the eschatological aspects of, of, of nearly all religions contain you know, prophecies concerning the advent of a saviour or a messiah to relieve the world of social, moral and spiritual ills. Now, the Hindus are waiting the re-advent of Krishna. The Zoroastrians believe in the coming of victorious Soshant, they call him. Uh, the, prof- the prophet Buddha, uh, peace be upon him, predicted the coming of Matthia, the Jews having been waiting for over 3,000 years for the descent of Elijah to be followed by a Jewish prophet uh, while Christians await the reappearance of Jesus. And now the Muslims, of course, believe in the coming of Imam Mahdi, the rightly guided leader who will be born uh, from among the Muslims. And later, the Messiah will, be, will, will descend from heavens near the end of times. While the founder of the Sikh religion, Baba Guru Nanak, also predicted the advent of great reformer. So it's interesting how all of these religions speak about the coming of a reformer. But the most important question that I want to ask you as listeners is how is it that mankind will recognize the latter days? Many of these religions speak on the appearance of uh, their respective spiritual reformers to come before the end of times. The Holy Quran, for instance, and the Hadith discuss the end of times in places Uh, For instance, Surah Al-Qiyamah, chapter 75, informs about the sun and the moon eclipse at the time of the promised Messiah. This is further supported by the prophecy of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, about the eclipses of the sun and the moon as a sign of the Mahdi. Um, Furthermore, in Surah Taqweer, in chapter 81, the Almighty speaks about the end of times in detail. The verses describe the the abandonment of camels as as a means of transport, the gathering of the beasts, the joining of two seas, the coming together of different nations, the spread of books among the signs of the end of times when the promised Messiah is meant to appear. Now, the most important question that we have for you today, how is it, again, I reiterate, that mankind would recognize this, this, this great reformer? Because the most important question is, will it be the case that all of these different religions would have their reformer coming for them? Or is it that one single individual is evaded by all of these different religions. So this is the conversation that we want to begin with, and which is the most logical uh, approach, because if you think about it, you know, every religion waiting for for a specific reformer, uh, the understanding, of course, given by the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is is that it all refers to one single individual, you know, who would who would be who would be coming to revive their their faith and, and 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 religion, you know, and and taking them back closer to Allah the Almighty and that relationship, re-establishing that. Yeah. Now, Islam being the final religion, as we know, um, right, a religion which is for all of mankind, right, as Allah, Allah the Almighty says to the Prophet, that uh, proclaim, inni rasulullahi ilaykum jami'ah, that I've been a Prophet sent to all of mankind, yeah. right? And this this claim of the Prophet is unique in the sense that he he encompasses all of these earlier teachings. Yeah. 
right, that came at different times. God says that there's not a nation that God has not sent a reformer. Yeah. Right? So so Islam is 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 universal in that sense that it recognizes all the previous teachings. Yeah. But with that it does state that yes, those teachings have been corrupted over time. Right? So I just want to circle back a bit here because yeah. I think that this is a great subject and one I'm really looking forward to, you know, dissect with you. Yeah. But the thing that I just want to put out there, because this was the first thing that came to my head, was um if every religion mm-hmm. is waiting for a reformer and that consistency amongst all of them, doesn't that just in itself prove the existence of God that it's coming from one source? Wow, great point. Interesting, right? yeah. Is it like because it's you know if people say you know a lot of like people who don't believe in any religion they say that it's man-made and like all like these prophets were not prophets or you know they, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting people the fact that every single prophet like mm-hmm. s- uh, is, is is spoke say, about it right? spoken spoke about, about this it, specific yes. issue the consistency there mm-hmm. doesn't that automatically <clears throat> or at least put heavy weight towards the argument for the existence of god mm-hmm. interesting because that was that was the first thing that came to my head because i was like okay look everybody's waiting for a reformer this is like you you can't tell me that like people from absolutely different walks of life like actual like massively different um you know times with each of these prophets arrivals mm-hmm. it, it, like the fact that they consistently send the same message and it's not just with this specific thing right there's a lot of things that are consistent across all religions you know i don't think there's a single religion that condones murder you know there's 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 so many consistent things and i think that when people sit there and say to me that oh you know these all man-made things to control like religion is is something that like man has made to control people and you know there's nothing afterwards I I I look at things like this, and it automatically makes me realize that you know, there's this puts so much weight towards the argument that yes, there is a God, and that God has sent prophets to have that connection with uh, mankind, and like you said, the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him is that one for the whole of mankind, whereas the previous ones were for the specific times. Um, and that that's that that's why Islam is is the religion that acknowledges all the previous prophets, right? Yes, absolutely. And you know we are going to be speaking shortly with 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 with, with our first guest where we will ask him with regards to um, you know Islamic eschatology and what does Islam speak about the end of mm-hmm. times and what are the sources and what does it say with 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 regards to it. Uh, we'll be going to that shortly, but uh, be right back after a short break. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A shakur. The appreciator. The one who bestows his grace on his servants, which he abundantly grants in response to meager and trifle efforts of his servants. And Allah will soon bestow a great reward upon the believers. And Allah is appreciating, all-knowing. 
Assalamualaikum, welcome back. Uh, we're discussing eschatological aspects of, of all religions containing prophecies with regards to a reformer, a, an advent of a reformer. And we were discussing how different religions include these prophecies and, 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 and how they interpret them. But, but the most important question that we asked is how is it that mankind as a whole are going to understand you know, this, whether it's going to be different people or different uh, reformers coming for different religions, or is it that it's going to be a single person uh, who will be coming to revive uh, faith as a whole and uniting us all under one banner. So we were discussing about, uh, you know, for first let's speak about, let's say, the thermic religions, right, which refer to uh, Hinduism and, you know, um, what, 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 what the Buddhism as well. Uh, thermic religions tend to have, uh, you know, uh, <coughs> Uh, you know, uh, it's called a cyclical. I think cyclical, yeah. cyclical uh, world worldview in a way, with 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 end time eschatologies sort of ca characterized by decays, redemption, and rebirth. And they do, however, speak on the coming of a reformer. Now, as I was mentioning before, Prophet Buddha, when speaking on uh, apocalyptic times, uh, also gave <coughs> sorry glad tidings about the coming of Buddha Maitreya. He's especially mm. referred to, and also in in Hindu scriptures, we, we we also find a mention of Kalki, the tenth or the last avatar who is prophesied to come, uh, in the in the in in the, to the uh, you know prophesied to come uh, at the end of you know times which will be very dark times, right? Mm. Now Bhagavad Gita uh, mentions that whenever there is a decline in righteousness and an increase in unrighteousness, God appears in this world through His power. And these are but a few sort of predictions, you know, made by. Uh, these religions um, and also you know apart from thermic religions as I was mentioning before in Islam there are so many signs with regards to it you know we were mentioning about Surah Taqweer mm. chapter 81 which speaks about <coughs> the end of times in detail the verses describe the abandonment of camels as a, as a means of transport the gathering of the beasts the joining of the seas the coming you know of nations coming together uh, and, and, and among the many signs uh, the Prophet peace be upon him also spoke about the Jal right the Antichrist uh, who will come out, out with an unusual donkey who will travel very fast on land on sea in the air and will with all you know the needed sustenance it would and, and the detail is so 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 striking that it will possess two enormous ears while moving in in in, in the skies right, right? Yeah. <clears throat> now the now the another important question that we have is whether the all of these sort of prophecies are to be taken literally as as they are stated yeah. that it's going to be a physical donkey of that kind sort of been traveling throughout the world or whether does it have another meaning yeah. right so so this is something that we're also going to be delving in in great detail and the prophet also alluded you know to a mode of transport which would have windows and people would sit in it as a sign for the coming of the promised messiah and he says we recognize these uh, you know of course even us as you know Ahmadi Muslims uh, belonging to the Muslim community we, we we recognize these you know signs as a a met metaphor of course right um, but there are there are of course uh, others who don't and uh, um, you know take them as 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 they are literally. So this is what we're going to discuss further um, yeah. as as well. But what do you think uh, with regards to you know uh, the question about um, you know various reformers coming for various religions? Do you think it 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 makes more sense that there should be one reformer uniting everybody, or do you think no, it should be separate reformers for their own religions? Definitely, I think that um, it has to be one, right? Because 
it it just <laughs> wouldn't make sense if everybody had a reformer and that you know especially with a lot of things being uh, differences of opinion but i think that it comes back to what you were saying about how um, the literal understanding uh, of teachings and um, that can end up misguiding people's beliefs and you know people will say that oh why why wouldn't they just spell it out for you like why would it be in a metaphor and why like you know why isn't it just exactly what it says it is but the thing is is that um uh, i think that what you realize is that and and this is how i always think about this right is that if you're explaining something to a child right you are you're you're not going to tell them exactly the way it is because they can't there are certain things that they can't understand so you're going to say it into words that that you they can understand right so words that they do already know like hot or cold or whatever and i think that that's where these uh issues come that you know we or the people um you know not every single person would have been able to comprehend it if it was written so explicitly um it needs to be put into a metaphor so that there can be an understanding so like you know for example when talking about the afterlife i think that there's a lot of metaphors used because our brains wouldn't be able to comprehend it until we're actually there and i think that um when when you're talking about this uh i think that ultimately it has like the only sense like if you just looked at it as a common sense kind of point of view and you know i'm not trying to offend anyone but for me i think it looks so clearly that it would be one person that all of these people are talking about Mm -hmm. and the consistency and it just shows that if it's all coming from one source one god then that would be natural that it would be that one person right yeah Interesting, of course. Um, I think we'll be going to our first uh, guest uh, on the line. We're speaking to uh, Imam Rabib Mirza. Imam Rabib Mirza is, is is currently an imam who is serving in the international MTN International Translation Department. He's also served previously in Ireland for about five and a half years, and also in Feltham. With a short introduction, Assalamu Alaikum and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Peace be upon you and peace be upon all of our listeners and Jazakallah for having me once again. Thank you so much for joining us. So we're speaking about, you know, eschatology, which, which, which refers to, you know, uh, prophecies and statements. And, you know, it's, it's a part of theology concerned with death, judgment and the final destiny of soul and humankind. But what we're specifically uh, sort of focusing on is the aspect of revival of faith and and a, and, and a universal search for a reformer where we find you know different uh, you know in different faiths uh, prophecies with regards to the coming of a reformer and they they are referred to by different titles and diff- different names so the question would be uh, why is it the ca- why is it that they are, they are referred to as diff- different titles and how is it that in this day and age you know, a person can can come together and 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 unite and recognize that individual. It's a it's a very good uh, question, and um, it's something that all major religions of the world mm-hmm. are anticipating that towards the end of times, a reformer, a savior, whether that reformer or savior is given the name of Messiah whether it's the re-advent of Krishna, whether it's the Soashant of the Zoroastrians, 
whether it's the Matia of uh, Prophet Buddha, all of them are awa- awaiting a savior and spiritual reformer to come and repair or reset the affairs pertaining to mankind and spirituality. As mankind is regressing spiritually, there is a need for someone to once again revive the faith and showcase mankind the right path. Now, this aspect of why they have been given different names and is it going to be multiple reformers that are going to come towards the end of times or is it just going to be one individual? With regards to the teachings of Islam, we understand that it will be one individual who will have many different titles. And the Holy Quran actually directs us towards this, where it states in one of its verses that that a time shall come where the messengers, where the prophets shall gather together. But we understand this to mean that there will be one individual he will imbibe and ultimately uh, express or manifest the various different aspects of those reformers and saviors that have been mentioned. Because all of these saviors and reformers that have been mentioned, there are specific things that have been mentioned in regards to them, and they are synonymous there's so many commonalities across all major religions with regards to when this particular savior is going to come or this particular reform is going to come. For example, in the religion of Zoroastrianism, there is a prophecy concerning the Sorshant uh, in the Jama Sipi, and it is a long prophecy, but it begins with the words of... <coughs> meaning that a time shall come where the nights are going to be lit up. They are going to be glowing. Now the question is that obviously night is something that we know is, is a state where it's very dark. So what does it mean that the nights are going to be livened, that they're going to be lit up, that they're going to be glowing? One possible interpretation that can be done is that because it's generally said that the moon, the 14th moon, is the time where the night sky is more lightened up, therefore this certain individual will come around this time. And then... There is, so in regards to, we can say, the 14th century, according to the uh, Islamic calendar. And then uh, one other um, prophecy regarding this uh, spiritual reformer or savior that's going to come towards the end of times in the Sikh religion, where Hazrat uh, Baba Guru Nanak mentioned that, 
and this basically means that there will be a guru just mm-hmm. in in this uh, reference that guru baba nanak has stated basically means someone who is a landlord in other words someone that has some you know some properties or name, yeah. Yeah. and then he says paragna vatale which was now vatala was the old name of batala and here baba guru nanak has mentioned that this guru will manifest himself near batala mm-hmm. now what we understand from these prophecies as members of the ahmadiyya muslim community as our interpretation is that these have been fulfilled mm-hmm. in the personage of uh, hazrat mirza ghulam ahmed of qadian from the islamic perspective his advent was on in the 13th and 14th century and i've mentioned how through the prophecy of uh, the soshant the 14th moon so this correlates or can correlate with the 14th century then with regards to hazrat baba guru nanak's prophecy regarding um this uh, holy reformer this guru <coughs> Qadian is, as we know, very near uh, mm-hmm. Batala. Yeah. And another very interesting prophecy of, of <laughs> Baba Guru Nanak, um, that's, we can say that it's even being fulfilled up till now, where he said that, Vakna payo kazniya jilikin le Quran, that do not torment Qadian, mm. Quran when they begin to write the Holy Quran now what does that mean we understand this to mean that it would be Qadian where the true Islamic teachings would manifest themselves throughout the world yeah and when I say that this is still being fulfilled up till now just recently we have published our 76th translation of the Holy Quran So mm-hmm. the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is at the forefront in spreading the teachings of the Quran that not only you know are they holding book fairs or exhibitions where they give out free holy qurans but also in the aspect of translating the holy quran getting the message of mm-hmm. the holy quran to <coughs> local people in their local language this is also something that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is a, is is producing Mm-hmm. and in this way that prophecy is also fulfilled even up to now mm, interesting and you know um coming to islam specifically now you know about sort of a general overview of islamic eschatology and highlighting you know some significant events it encompasses uh, you know um what is it that the prophet has spo- you know, spoken about you know about the last days or or, or what does the quran say about it uh, you know including those you know prophesied in islamic tradition So if you can highlight some of those for our listeners. Absolutely. I mean that that's a very extremely um an essential aspect for understanding and recognizing you know the that Messiah that savior that reformer who is going to come towards the end of the latter days. Mm-hmm. Now in regards to the Holy Quran for example there's a mention in Surah Al-Qiyamah chapter 75 <coughs> it talks about the sun and the moon eclipse mm-hmm. 
one sign being of the latter the the latter days or the end of times then <coughs> we see that this specific prophecy has also been elaborated by the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him where he spoke about how the sun and moon will be eclipsed and he's mentioned <coughs> that these will be signs limahdiyana He's mentioned that it will be a sign for our Mahdi. So the Holy Prophet has remembered that Mahdi in the words of Limahdiyana, and it shows how dear that Mahdi will be to him. Now, one thing I should mention in regards to this specific prophecy, because it's been recorded in the Islamic book of Tarikutni, sometimes people discredit this and say that it is a weak narration and, and so on and so forth. But one thing to remember, that the scholars of the Hadith, they have mentioned a very beautiful and practical principle. They state that if any Hadith is fulfilled, then that itself shows that this particular narration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which is being deemed as being weak or it's being discredited, that it shows that itself shows that it's a strong hadith because it's been fulfilled. And we know that in eighteen ninety four and eighteen ninety five, both in the Western and Eastern hemispheres, this <coughs> particular incident took place. And Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian was the only one at that time who claimed to be a Mahdi. Before him, there were three to four claimants of Mahdiship, but during the month of Ramadan, either the sun was eclipsed or nothing happened, or the sun and moon were eclipsed, but they did not happen in the month of Ramadan. And I remember doing some research um, about this, um, that <clears throat> I think it's uh, from the time of the, the promised Messiah, um up till up till now um during the the holy month of of ramadan they have either it was a very small number where the eclipses have happened or it's next to nothing so the fact of the matter is that when the sign took place yes. and there was a claimant to mm-hmm. mahdi ship yeah. which was mirza ghulam ahmed then that basically shows the truthfulness and now even um, this photographic uh, proof uh, in one of the readers digest volumes which actually shows somebody taking a photo of this particular eclipse that took place mm-hmm. uh, in uh, 1894 yeah so the fact of the matter is that this prophecy has been fulfilled uh, in the lifetime of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. Mm-hmm. Then there's some other very detailed prophecies in Surah Takbir, chapter 81 of the Holy Quran. This also speaks about the end times. For example, yes. it speaks about the means of uh, transport. Mm. It speaks about how the camels are going to be abandoned. It speaks about the gathering of, of beef. Now, we know that nowadays, hardly, hardly, Camels are, are are used as modes of transport. We have, you know, we have the airplanes, we have mm, boats, we have ferries, we yeah. have cars, we have trains. 
And these are those modes of transport that the Holy Quran was alluding to mm-hmm. when it spoke about how the camel is going to be abandoned. Mm-hmm. Then the gathering of the beast. Mm-hmm. This has been fulfilled with zoos. That mm-hmm. all species and different types of animals have been gathered in one place. Then there's the joining of the seas. Mm-hmm. There's the coming together of uh, different nations. Mm-hmm. Now, this prophecy again has taken a new, um, we can say, uh, interpretation where, yes, on, on in before communicating with one another, this was one way that um, this was fulfilled, but it's taken new light in this sense that now we can even see one another um, just through our handheld devices. So the, this is how the coming together of different nations has, has been fulfilled. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the whole world has become one mm-hmm. global village. Mm-hmm. Then it's talking about the the spread of uh, books, whether that there will be a time where the books will spread. Now this, again, since the time of Hazrat Muhammad, this has excelled, that, you know, books are being spread left, right, and center. Um, since his time. Then another <coughs> uh, prophecy uh, regarding um, the ends of times, which the Holy Prophet, peace and of Allah be upon him, has mentioned um, in re- relation to the Dajjal or the Antichrist. And this is also in regards to the mode of transport. Yeah. That he will come out with a very unusual donkey. He would, you know, he would have one foot in the sea and one foot in the air and basically what the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him was mentioning here uh and he would have two enormous ears while moving in the sky so again the holy prophet used language for people to understand that uh, at that time obviously it was inconceivable for them uh you know during the time of the holy prophet to even contemplate that uh, such modes of transport would be built but yet, the eloquency of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is, is so beautiful. And the way that he's explained it, now we understand it, that, you know, this particular donkey would travel fast on land and in sea, uh, and in the air as well, with all needed sustenance. And even it's mentioned that this uh, in, the, in the belly of the donkey, there would be people sitting there. Mm-hmm. So this all of these things show that there were going to be new modes of, of transport as well. Then the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, um, mentioned in uh, <coughs> relation to the mode of transport um, that it would have windows, and as I mentioned, that you know people would would sit in it. So all of these things have actually progressed since the, the time of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian. So. Again, our interpretation of these particular prophecies, we do not take them literally. Because to take it literally, that is going to be you know, an unusual donkey who's going to travel on land and sea and in, in this manner, and he's going to have two enormous ears while moving in the skies. It's, it's something that ridicules the words of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Yeah. It actually... Um, we can say defames yeah. his words. So these things have to be taken 
in a, a manner where it can be understood and the eloquency of the Holy Prophet should be looked at that how he described those modes of transport hmm. at that time and then how they've been fulfilled in this time. Absolutely. And one of the points that need to be mentioned is is, is the overemphasis of literal interpretation uh, you know, by by uh, you know previous script uh, by previous uh, you know followers of previous scriptures as well. I mean, we know our beloved Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him also told us that you <clears throat> that my my ummah would have a resemblance with with, with with the Jewish people. You know, with 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 the, with the Jews, and it specifically mentioned um, this uh, just just as a shoe remember you know resembles the other shoe. And when we kind of ponder over that resemblance, you know, where they came a Messiah for them. But due to their literal interpretation of the text before them, they were unable to recognize him, right? And in this case, this resemblance is, is only completed when they, the, the Muslims also, you know, a Messiah comes to them, but they do not, you know, uh, see the signs, but, but, but they take everything to be literally, right? So, so why is it the case, you know, that, 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 that the followers of religions, <clears throat> you know, and that is a test as well because... If everything was apparent, then there is no reward. This, 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 this is the element that's there as well. But why is it the case that there is so much emphasis, you know, by the scholars on the literal reading of the text, you know, rather than an, an, an understanding its deeper, you know, meanings and insight? Um, <clears throat> again, it's a, it's a very, very good question. It's a very significant question. Hmm. Um, and it's a question that's raised time and again. Unfortunately, sometimes the literal aspect of certain prophetic words or certain words of God um, are interpreted by certain scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I just mentioned in relation to the Dajjal or the Antichrist, that we know that very unfortunately, unfortunately, some so-called, we can say Muslim scholars, they take this literally this prophecy literally mm-hmm. and <clears throat> the reason sometimes it happens first and foremost out of ignorance yeah. and sometimes it happens because they are not ready or willing to accept the truth mm. as we know that when jesus the messiah peace be upon him when he came and he said that i'm the messiah the jews denounced him and said that well, Elijah has not returned from the heavens. So how is it possible that you can be the Messiah? First, Elijah will return, and then the Messiah shall come after him. And Jesus said to them that John the Baptist, who is here, he has come as Elijah. So Jesus actually denounced this (coughs) theory that even has now crept up amongst the Muslims that someone can bodily ascend to heaven. Jesus said, no, John the Baptist has come in the likeness of Elijah. What does that mean? That means that he's come in his resemblance. Whatever the qualities Elijah, Prophet Elijah, possessed, John the Baptist also possesses them. So when we talk about the prophecies in relation to the Messiah in Islam, we do not refer to the previous Messiah because this misconception has also come about that God forbid the Messiah, Jesus, has ascended to heaven and the Muslims are still awaiting for his return physically in the physical body. 
but the members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, their stance is very simple and straightforward on this. We say that that Jesus, the son of Mary, he's not going to descend. Rather, someone in his likeness would come. And this is, again, um, supporting what Jesus said to the Jews of his time, that bodily ascension to heaven is impossible. A person can come in the resemblance of someone from before. That's why even we, when we call somebody a lion, it does not mean that they grow a mane or they grow a tail. Mm-hmm. A lion is a, sim- a symbol of you know, bravery, of courage. So we say that you are a lion, in other words, you're a very brave person. doesn't mean that you've grown a mane or you've uh, grown a tail. So in relation to this particular um, Messiah, our understanding is that Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian, he came in the likeness and resemblance of Jesus. And like <coughs> Prophet Jesus, was the Messiah and expressed and enjoying teachings of love and peace and harmony. Yes. This is the same work that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed of Qadian was going to do. So that's why the motto of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community we see is love for all, hatred for none. Mm -hmm. And this is based upon the Islamic teachings as well. Absolutely. Islam says that uh, you have to, if you love the creator, then you love his creation. Like you say that if you love the artist, you have to love his art. So if you love God Almighty, then you have to love his creation. You do not go about killing them and bombing them and you know murdering them in the name of religion. This has nothing to do with, with religion. So as I, coming back to the question as well, that fundamentally sometimes these things are born out of ignorance and sometimes mm-hmm. people just share, you know, they just want to uh, put it to the side because they have their own vested interests. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I mean, it was a pleasure uh, having you on. Um, there's so much more to discuss it's because it's just the time has gone the better of us. Jazakallah, may Allah bless you. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll have you again, hopefully speaking about another important topic. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu is the number to call. Uh, we're discussing religious eschatology, specifically with regards to the revival of faith and universal search for a reformer. And we're discussing how every religion, every major religion, let's say, uh, has prophecies, contain prophecies concerning the advent of a savior or messiah to relieve the world of social and moral social, moral and spiritual ills. And we mentioned right at the beginning how various scriptures have these prophecies. And just now, uh, uh, Brother Rabbi Mirza, Imam Rabbi Mirza, you know, elo- eloquently explained the the Islamic eschatology and, and, and the un- understanding of that. Now we'll be going to our next guest. We'll be sp- we're going, to, going all the way to Ireland now. We're speaking to Imam Ibrahim Noonan Sahib, who is a graduate of both Christian and Islamic theology and philosophy. Uh, and he's currently serving there as the missionary in charge. Assalamu alaikum. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. And welcome to the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, 
the topic is clear what we're discussing i mean mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> revival of faith a very important topic you know and a universal search for a reformer um and, and we you know before actually you, before you came on we spoke about you know various scriptures talking about the coming of a reformer whether 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 it makes sense that we accept one individual to be the reformer for all of these religions or are we saying that every single religion would have a separate reformer to reform them the questions that we have for you is is firstly could you kind of briefly give us a summary a general overview of christian eschatology what it includes and highlight some significant events that it encompasses including those prophesied by uh, prophet jesus alayhi salam yeah i mean it's it's uh, this uh, actually branch uh, a theological branch of um, eschatology is it was actually uh, many people may not know this and particularly those who are maybe not christians would certainly not know that i suppose um, it, it was a branch of theology which was developed uh, by, by, by the early church. I mean, when I say the early church, um, modern church, I mean, uh, 4th, 5th, 6th century and beyond, mm-hmm. where they had to develop something to explain uh, regarding the end times. That, that's what um, eschatology is all about. It's, it's regarding uh, the return of Jesus, the return of a Messiah figure, um, the return of a person who will come uh, basically in the end times. And that's, for example, in, 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 the, in the Greek word, parousia, uh, it means uh, return. Mm-hmm. So basically, this is something mm-hmm. which the, the church, and when I say the church, I mean the early church, the early church uh, and beyond. I mean, the early church would be the, the Roman Catholic Orthodox Church, which would have been the first to discuss these things, and then it would have involved. Uh, with the schism in the church with itself and then poking through the people of the church, Russian church, etc., etc. But basically, what this is all about is about explaining the importance of the return of a messiah figure, the return of Jesus um, in the end times. And um, if, if I was to be absolutely honest and brutally honest, if I make it, and I don't mean this to be offensive to any. Of, uh, perhaps your Christian uh, listeners, and that's not what I'm trying to do here. If you were looking for any source of, of any evidence of uh, this concept of uh, eschatology, it, it, it is the New Testament itself. And that's the primary source. And the problem with that is you have to have scholars who came later on who wrote articles, who wrote books, to elaborate upon it, to explain it in light of all many times, many things, for example, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, they have to revise and rethink about what this means because every passing year they were waiting for that return. And, and certainly, um, you know, it's, it's clearly written in the primary source was the New Testament where Jesus clearly pointed out particular signs uh, which would point out to his, his, not his physical return in a sense, but his, his second advent. And that, that's all of chapter 24 and part of uh, chapter 23. Um, so these are the two, what I would call the primary sources of, um, of that uh, return of Jesus, the end time signs, the end time explanation about the resurrection, the uh, death after life, etc., etc. So, Mm-hmm. I suppose to give you one example of that would be 
um, in chapter 23, mm-hmm. uh, where Jesus himself warns, warns um, people, and I want to point this out, when he warns, he warns Jewish people. He's mm-hmm. not warning Christians at that time, because Christianity didn't exist then. Mm-hmm. He warns in chapter 23, 27, mm-hmm. about the early, the, the church, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, thou hast killed the prophets and stoned them, which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as the hen gathered her chickens under her wings, mm-hmm. and ye would not, would I not? Behold, the house is that desolate. And this is where it starts. Here Jesus is telling those people, the Jewish people, God has abandoned you now. The temple temple is empty. The spirituality is gone. The mm-hmm. revelation, the communication of God is finished. Mm-hmm. So from there he goes on to chapter 24. Um, uh, sorry, uh, sorry. within chapter 23, I should say, verse 39, where he actually says, when he's been asked by his companions, how will we recognize your sign? And how will we know uh, your return? How will we know you have returned? And how will we know how you will return? He simply says, I truly say unto you, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed be accompanied in the Lord. So here, here it's clearly written, he is not coming back. Okay? Mm. It's clearly written he's not coming back. And chapter 24 uh, elaborates upon that. It's too long. I can't go through the whole chapter 24 for you, but it elaborates upon that um, uh, that return. So the number of points you got to keep in mind is, number one, Jesus said there would be false, false prophets making claims. He said there would be the elect that will deceive you. Um, he said so many things about wars and famines and earthquakes, etc., etc., but the three or two things that I think that everyone should be looking at is where he said, when you see uh, uh, lightning coming out of the east and shine onto the west, so shall you find the, sun, the coming of the Son of Man. So here, he's pointing to where that prophet will come from. When you see lightning coming from the east and to the west, therefore shall you find the Son of Man. Son of Man in Judaic literature means... Mm-hmm a prophet, a pious person, mm-hmm. a righteous person, but it's always given to a prophet. So here he's saying, that is where you will find my second coming, mm-hmm. and that's where you will find that prophet, and he will come from the east, his teaching will come from the east onto the west. Now, lightning, I should say. Now, lightning means in biblical terminology, divine teaching. That's what it means in biblical terminology. So when you see divine teaching coming from the east onto the west, therefore to you from the Son of Man. And interestingly, after that, which has been fulfilled mm-hmm. in every way, <coughs> he also said there will be days of tribulation. Yeah. That means once that person makes the claim, he will be facing persecution, he will be facing tribulation, he will be facing all sorts of difficulties, even mm. as it is said that you will be hated for my namesake, and even you could be, you will be killed for my namesake. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus said, Immediately after the tribulation, when the sun is darkened, the moon shall not give its light. That that is the sign that of his spiritual advent. So, so these are just examples I'm giving you. Interesting. Right? Interesting. There are many more. Of course. So these, these are clear. These are clear examples. Not only they are specific examples, and they're not vague. And um, you have a, a, a geographic idea of where he's going to come from, which is the east. Now keep in mind, when Jesus was in uh, Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem is India and Syria and all that area. 
So, I mean, for me, these are the the um, the eschatology uh, evidence that, yeah. that that what he was talking about, and, and therefore it's clear, it's very clear that one person, that person, a prophet of God, will come uh, in the end times with a divine teaching. Interesting, and. Um, can we also sort of a high, you know, outline the Christian perspective on the, you know the resurrection and his returns? You know, very briefly. I know we're we're coming because there's one more question I want to ask you and sort of elucidate the you know distinctions uh, from the beliefs that are held by the Hamdiya Muslim community. How does this sort of differentiate, and how how does the Bible support uh, you know the view that Jesus actually did not die on the cross, but rather was saved? And why why did he have to be saved? Well, uh, first of all, I mean, it's for me, it's it's very simple. Number one, and again, and it's in the Gospel of Matthew, it's in the other, it's in, in fact, it's in, um, in, in, in all the Gospels we're thinking about this, uh, about his time in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he repeatedly, constantly pleaded with God Almighty that to remove this cup from him. Now, this cup, remember, mm. in, in biblical terminology, cup means death. Mm. So he was pleading with God to remove death from me, remove this death that's about to come to me, remove it from me. Mm-hmm. And secondly, what, what Christians have to understand, um, we accept that he's human, we accept that he has human weaknesses, we accept all human prophets will plead and cry, but he was asking, pleading that, that this should be removed from, to save, to save him from this, what's about to happen to him. And yeah. as we know in that, in, in that passage, an angel appeared to him, yeah. Now, the angel reassured him. The question we have to ask is, re- re- reassured him what? Are you going to die? Or you're saved? And is going to, God Almighty is going to save you. Now in Hebrews 5.7, uh, the answer is there. Because in Hebrews 5.7 it says, and I quote, In the days of his flesh, he who offered up prayers to him who could save him, and out of reverence for him, he was saved. So here, it was saying that Jesus prayed to God, mm-hmm. to that person who could save him, and God saved him. Mm. So it's clear from these two passages, I mean, there's so much more evidence. Mm. I'm just giving because of time. Of course. But this was clearly indicating that Jesus was saved from the death of the cross. The whole ritual of the cross, the whole going through the cross, yeah. also is evident from blood and water coming out uh, by, by Jesus saying, crying out, my Lord, my Lord, why has that forsaken me? It means he was expecting something. So, mm. oh man, there's so much I could say. Of course. Because of, course. of your time, I'm worried. Yes, and lastly. But what's clear, what's... Yes, mm. yes, please. Go ahead, please. Yes, lastly, where we wanted to speak about, you know, how is it then uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, you know, considers Mirza Ghulam Ahmad to be the second coming of, of uh, Jesus, peace be upon him, with, with the context of biblical understanding. Of course, we have a context from Islamic understanding, but from the biblical understanding. And also, I, w- I want to add something to that so you can cover both things in, in about a minute. <laughs> Sorry, I'll give you the time because we're coming to the end. is <laughs> about the time when he appeared. So, you know, we, we, we know about the 1831, the Baptist preacher, William Miller, you know, predicting that Jesus would return by, you know, by to the earth by 1844 and thousands sold their possessions and all, you know, all of these things. And it was known as the Great Controversy. So the time in which the Prophet of Islam appeared and also uh, from the Christian perspective, what is it that indicates that he is that man? What indicates he is that man, number one, is, this, is the signs which is, from a Christian perspective, mm-hmm. are the signs which Jesus gave about his second coming. 
You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't need to repeat myself. But he, mm-hmm. Number one, he said he's not coming. Number two, he said that when you see lightning coming from the east and through the west, um, uh, that's, that's where you will find me. That's where you will find the Son of Man, mm-hmm. no, a prophet. Number two, I'm sorry, number three, he mentioned the celestial sign, mm-hmm. the eclipse of the moon and the sun. This will be the sign that was given. We know in 1894, so 1891, Came and they were fulfilled in 